Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 78, Public Health, Single Payer, and the American Public Health Association. My guest, Anthony Spadaro, MD, MPH, is a resident physician in emergency medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He graduated from a combined MD-MPH program from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He was one of the authors on a policy statement endorsing single-payer health care as the path to universal health care endorsed by the American Public Health Association. Dr. Anthony Spadaro, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks for having me, Joe. We're going to discuss how you got the American Public Health Association to pass a resolution supporting a public single-payer healthcare system. But I'd like to start with a basic question, because I don't think people have a good understanding of this. What is public health? Thanks for asking. Public health is the field that promotes wellness, prevents sickness and injury, and protects our communities. You know, I think a lot of people might think about it narrowly. It's just focusing on people getting to wear seatbelts or stop smoking, but I think it encompasses a much broader vision of not just preventing injury, but also promoting health and wellness, whether that be physical, mental, societal. I think it encompasses a lot more than what people might typically think of. Well, let me expand on that a bit with something like Indoor plumbing, I mean, not only is it a matter of great convenience, because I'd hate to have to go outside to go to the bathroom, but would something like indoor plumbing be considered a matter of public health? Yeah, indoor plumbing, clean water, the ability to you know, get a glass of water and not get salmonella or, um, you know, the food products you eat, the kind of house you live in, you know, that's all encompasses public health in addition to, you know, the stuff that happens in and out of the hospital. Well, then wouldn't also some things like, say, central heat and air conditioning be considered public health, making sure people have enough to eat be considered public health? I would think so. And certainly, you know, I think in many, especially in cities and different counties, public health departments, you know, on particularly hot days, they might have open cooling centers particularly cold days, they might put alerts in effect to, you know, have shelter for people that maybe, you know, don't have heat or are homeless, you know, so certainly dealing with the environment, um, certainly much broader than just issues that deal with single payer. I think the environment's a big issue that public health needs to address. And of course, one goal of public health is obviously disease prevention and even accident prevention. Which leads me to my next question. What do you consider to be the goals of public health? I think the goals of public health are to maximize the quality and longevity of life. I'm an ER doctor and I work every day focusing on stabilization of sick patients, triaging patients, you know, dealing with broken bones, gunshot wounds, that sort of things. But I think, you know, public health looks sort of beyond just what happens in the emergency department. And can think about things that might, you know, impact what brings people to the ED in the first place, like kind of work that they do, 
how much money, you know, how much money do they have? What their neighborhoods are like? Are there, you know, are the streets safe for drivers, pedestrians, that sort of thing? I would like to shift gears a bit and ask how well do you think the U.S. met the goals of public health in its response to COVID? So I think there's a lot of things that we actually did well pretty early on in the pandemic. We were trying to create the conditions for people to safely physically distance, covered COVID-related tests and treatments. You know, different city or cities and states tried to stop evictions. But I think, unfortunately, for us, that a lot of that movement stopped short of, um, you know, how long the pandemic really lasted. And I think it showed some of the faults in our public health system. You know, people didn't have the financial security to stay home from work for long periods of time. And so that ability to physically distance was undermined. You know, the government didn't always portray the most uniform message on, you know, getting wearing a mask or getting a vaccine. And I, so I think that prevented some of the what public health officials and workers would want to see as our response to the COVID pandemic. I'm honestly worried about our ability to respond to a future wave, which seems like it very might happen at the time of this recording, given that there's lapse in federal funding for testing and treatments, people aren't you know, gonna get the care they need. There's still financial barriers that lead to delays in care, not just for COVID, but for other things. And I think for future waves of the pandemic, we're gonna be even less well-prepared than we were in the past. One of the things you said, people weren't able to stay home for financial reasons, but some people still needed to go to work, like grocery store workers, healthcare workers, how do you think the U.S. responded in protecting them? You know, I think we did kind of a poor job of protecting our essential workers. And, you know, there have been numerous studies that showed that, that people that worked in those sort of essential fields were particularly at risk, high risk for infection from COVID-19 early on in the pandemic. There are obviously some jobs that can't be done remotely. And I think figuring out how to protect those workers would have been you know, things like stronger mask mandates, trying to limit non-essential business um, when possible, um, and creating, you know, safe and hygienic workplaces. I think a lot of hospitals responded well to that, but I know that that was good for every essential worker, um, especially some of the lower wage workers in like grocery stores. And one of the things that I personally think the U.S. failed at was just providing enough protective gear, masks, gowns, whatever they use. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I know early on in the pandemic, we had to you know, reuse our like N95s. I think the government could have done more to mobilize greater production of that. You know, I think initially there was mixed messaging about even whether or not people should wear a mask, kind of mask people should wear. Now I think there's more supply in terms of, you know, being able to get face shields or, or masks or, you know, gowns and things like that. But I think the question is of messaging around whether or not people should wear them. I know I have family members that work in grocery stores. I know it's you know, tough for them to, to get high quality mass early on in the pandemic. And I think that's something our responsibility of our elected officials and government to make sure that those people are safe. I'd like to shift away from COVID and disease specifically and just ask in general, how well do you think 
the U.S. does in meeting the goals of public health? I think we're doing pretty poorly. The, you know, the life expectancy has been dropping in this country, I think now for six or seven years in a row. You know, it's not just a COVID thing. You know, there are just articles in the news the other day about how COVID deaths reached over a million deaths, overdose deaths were over well, 100,000 this past year. Um, you know, those are all contributing to earlier mortality in this country. You know, there's a lot of things that, that Medicare for All advocates talk about how we pay more for healthcare in this country, over $10,000, probably at this point, over $15,000 per capita, that we're essentially already paying for a Medicare for All system, but we aren't getting the, the outcomes that we want. You know, we're, we're far behind other developed nations in terms of our health outcomes. And, you know, we're spending all this money on, on healthcare. A lot of that goes towards, you know, hospitals, sort of acute care. Um, and we aren't actually spending that much on public health. Um, and sort of our paper that we wrote for APHA and their endorsement of single payer, we talked about how the spending for percentage of expenditure that goes towards public health has been, you know, dropping. And even during the pandemic, the amount that we spend on public health really hasn't been going up. And so, you know, I think that we're failing those aspects of, of the goals of public health. And then sort of like we were talking about earlier, some of the broader things like funding our public schools, funding infrastructure, those are necessary to meet the goals of public health. And I think we're also falling behind on that. You know, we often talk about how healthcare only accounts for like 20% of life expectancy, maybe even less. A smaller percentage has to do with genetics and that leaves sort of most of what we deal with in terms of life, life expectancy has to do with our you know, health behaviors, where we live, how much money we have, access to grocery stores. And that stuff is all public health and we aren't really sort of meeting our goals there. One of the things, and I think people often forget this, is that the social determinants of health are very important. And if the U.S. wants to improve it's public health. We also need to take a look at how we can improve those social determinants of health for everybody. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. When I was, um, you know, when I was getting my master's in public health, I think in a lot of public health schools, I think this is pretty common across the country in public health curriculum that you will show you a pyramid of, you know, what determines, you know, health, and the social determinants of health will sort of be the base of that pyramid and further up, you know, maybe there's things about the kind of choices we make in everyday life. And at least, you know, when I was in public health, getting my master's, people would say, well, we can't really do too much about social determinants of health, but we can, you know, help people make healthier choices by, you know, like in the cafeteria, having the salad bar near the entrance instead of, you know, like the French fry bar or whatever. So people buy more salads than French fries. But I think that, you know, I think there's some, something limited about that sort of worldview that we can't really impact the social determinants of health that way. And all we can do is sort of tweak around the edges and help people, you know, smoke less or eat more salads, which I think are totally worthwhile goals. But we also, I think, can do concrete things that, you know, improves people's health by addressing things like poverty, by, the, you know, cost of health care, those sorts of things. I'm reminded of a joke where this, the joke is this guy's praying to God and he says, God, God, please let me win the lottery. Please let me win the lottery. And finally God responds and says, 
okay, I'll let you win the lottery, but you have to do something for me. And the guy says, whatever you want, God, what do I need to do? You have to buy a ticket. <laughs> so, of course, the point is, if you don't try to fix things, they're not going to get fixed, most likely. The, uh, there's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where the one character says, you know, could be a whole lot worse. And then, you know, the retort is it could also be a whole lot better. Yeah. All right. Moving on. In October of 2021, um, the American Public Health Association passed a resolution supporting a public single-payer healthcare system. And of course, you helped develop and advocate for the American Public Health Association to support single-payer. Why did you think that it was so important for the American Public Health Association to pass that resolution? I think there's a couple of reasons why it's so important. The American Public Health Association, APHA, is a big organization. It represents a lot of different people in the public health field. You know, physicians like myself, public, you know, epidemiologists, researchers, nurses, pharmacists. And, you know, this, so it's a big tense organization. And in fact, the people that sort of helped write this, I certainly wasn't alone or the most important person in writing this resolution. Um, and they wrote it with a lot of, you know, really thoughtful and, and smart colleagues who came from all sorts of different professional backgrounds, you know, epidemiology, nursing, pharmacy, social work that helped write this policy. And so I think, you know, having a big organization saying that this is a priority is a big deal. It helps, you know, set everyone's eyes sort of on the same goal. And so, you know, I think that's important. I think the other thing is that for us, when we sat down and start writing this, it seemed like something obvious that APH should support. And we were, some of us were surprised that APHA hadn't in fact already passed a resolution like this. And so I think for, for single payer activists, for Medicare for all activists, it's important to set our targets on, on some of these sort of low hanging fruits of organizations that are friendly to our cause and, and using that as a way of building publicity and and getting the word out about Medicare for all. And then I think for me, I think no, no matter what you do for, for work or whatever, is that, yeah, we should all look towards our professional organizations, our workplaces, unions, community groups, church groups, Boy Scouts, wherever, to organize for Medicare for all, um, because it really is such an important thing. It's a life and death thing that impacts all of us. Um, and we should look to the to our natural networks and our communities to build support for this movement because we don't have the, the same money as the insurance companies to take out billboards and radio advertisements or whatever else they do. So we have to to think about our our grassroots organizing to, to build this movement. Well, one of the things you mentioned publicity, and of course, I'm an activist for Medicare for all. But until I talked to you, I wasn't even aware that the APHA had done this. And that concerns me a little bit. I like to think I'm well-informed, but sometimes I miss things. So why do you think that is, that it wasn't well-known? Well, I think part of it is, too, there's you know, the process of 
once a resolution's passed, there's an editing process that takes a while for it to get finalized. There's certainly been a lot of other public health things that have been in the news, not the least of which is the pandemic this past year that I think can sometimes get overshadowed. And then I think also sometimes our, our professional organizations are you know, sometimes focused more on research and um, that sort of thing rather than getting the message out and organizing in the sort of advocacy that groups like Physicians for a National Health Program or Healthcare Now or National Nurses Union have a lot more experience with, like the American College of Physicians and Internal Medicine Organization also put out a policy in support of universal healthcare and single payer. And I think, you know, PNHP did good work with, with using that endorsement as a way of, of, you know, gathering attention around the Medicare for All movement. Well, do you think that having the American Public Health Association support this, passing this resolution will help in any major way? I think it's a step in the right direction. You know, obviously we have a long ways to go. Someone who's been advocating for Medicare for all for, for a number of years now has realized that it's not, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think, you know, we have to, to build our support and our political power to make this a reality. And it's something that we have to make sure isn't an issue that just gets put on the back burner during non-election years. And, you know, having groups like APHA support single payer helps build momentum and, you know, keep it in the public attention. And, you know, I think a lot of Medicare for all active advocates have a long view of history and know that, you know, we're on the right side of history. Um, and that's why, you know, that I have mentors that have been advocating for this for decades. And, you know, I don't think they're they're not giving up anytime soon and I don't have any plans to give up anytime soon on, on advocating for this. So, you know, I want to be optimistic and say it's, it's right around the corner, but I know there's a ton of work we need to do between now and then. So, you know, one step at a time. And I think it's a step in the right direction. Well, I'll say this to give you an indication of how old I am. I'm on Medicare and I certainly hope that I can see Medicare for all passed in my lifetime and hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Not to give away my age either. When I started medical school in 2014 and I, you know, just trying to advocate for, for Medicare for all among my med school classmates, I know it seemed sort of like a crazy idea at the time. And, you know, since, you know, Bernie Sanders campaign and a lot of, I think, advocacy for Medicare for all that's happened in the past, eight years has made that seem, seem less like a fringe crazy idea and something more mainstream. I've been for Medicare for All for more than a decade, and I started this podcast in November of 2018, and I've learned a lot from interviewing people. But one of the things I would say is Medicare for All is not the crazy idea. What's the crazy idea is keeping our current healthcare system because the more I learn, the more I realize just how bad and harmful this system is. Absolutely. You know, I, the estimates are out there that 40 to 50,000 people die every year 
due to lack of insurance, you know, there's great racial and socioeconomic disparities in our healthcare that we see every day. I see every day working in healthcare, and I think it's a system that that absolutely needs to be changed. And I think thinking that it they can't be changed is you know, the, the crazy idea. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, you know, I think we got into it a little bit, but you know, there's there's so much that goes into to public health, and and single payer is an important step in that direction. But it's not the it's not going to be the the end all fix to to some of the issues of that are facing public health, you know, there's all these attacks on abortion and reproductive rights that are going on in the news right now. And I think all these issues with opioid use disorder and substance use disorder and overdoses. And I think, you know, we'd need to, to take a hard look at our society and figure out how, how we can organize ourselves in a way that prioritizes people's health and wellness and not the profits of a few corporations or the the luxuries of a few individuals and really think about how we can make ourselves into a better society, which I know Medicare for all, although not the final step in that direction, I think will be an important catalyst in getting us there. Well, I certainly agree with that. And while I tend to focus on specifically the healthcare system and of course, Medicare for all, I realize that to really have an impact, We need a much stronger social safety net. And if we really want to do something about public health, we have to look at the broad approach that we were talking about earlier. Food, shelter, clothing, I would say education, healthcare, and especially mental health care. So I do have that perspective, although I don't cover it all that much on this podcast, but I think it is important to mention Well, Tony, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, MedicareForAllExplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.